Hey, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here and I have the privilege of sharing with you this morning. When I was a kid, I remember reading Highlights magazines. Maybe you've seen those before. They had lots of fun activities for kids like hidden pictures where you have to find little objects. And there was a section called Goofus and Gallant. Goofus was always doing something wrong and Gallant was the counterexample of how children were supposed to behave. So Goofus bosses his friends, but Gallant asks, what do you want to do next? They still make these cartoons today, although they look a little different. When Goofus helps Grandpa with the computer, he says, no, the button, not the link. Oh, just let me do it. But when Gallant helps Grandma with the tablet, he says, to get back to where you were, tap that arrow. I don't know, all I'm learning from this is that Grandma is a better listener. Anyway, reading our text for today made me remember Goofus and Gallant for the first time in a long time. Because like Goofus, Joseph's brothers always seem to bumble around and mess things up. They've had decades to grow and mature, and as we'll see today, they still make some pretty boneheaded decisions. This will be particularly evident when it comes to dealing with hurts from the past. And Joseph, though not perfect by any means, definitely shows a better way to handle those things. He basically operates on a different level compared to his brothers. Years of challenges and overcoming adversity have made him a mature man of God who knows how to keep the main thing the main thing. He has learned how not to allow the hurts of the past define who he is now. He knows the secret of being an overcomer instead of a victim. But there's no doubt Joseph was a victim. Kidnapped by his brothers, sold as a slave, he worked hard and grew in his position in Egypt, but was accused of a crime he didn't commit and thrown into prison. And after helping a prominent prisoner, that guy didn't help him in return for a long time. When Joseph finally got out of prison, he was made second in command of all of Egypt by the Pharaoh because he demonstrated great wisdom. Joseph's life is a tale of ups and downs. It's the story of a man whose life was interrupted over and over and how he learned and grew through those experiences. And I hope you've learned a lot from our study in Joseph because this is our last week. Next week, we're starting a new series called The Power of Small, how little things can make a big difference. And for this series, all of our pastors collaborated to design it together and each pastor will preach one week. So make sure you join us next week as we kick that off. Today, we wrap up the Life Interrupted series with the last chapter in Genesis, chapter 50. And reading the previous chapters, you might think the story was over already. After all, Joseph has already revealed his identity to his brothers. Everything's cool now. Uh, he moved them to Egypt to live together. It's been 17 years since then. And all that stuff about kidnapping him and almost killing him and selling him off as a slave is just water under the bridge now, right? Wrong. Joseph may have moved on, but the brothers haven't. Now to give you some context between last week's message and this week's message, there are two main developments. One is that Jacob, Joseph's father, has a lengthy conversation with his sons and prophesies a blessing over each son. The second is that Jacob passes away and Joseph and the brothers take his body back to Canaan to be buried with his ancestors. Joseph was so well-respected that all of Pharaoh's officials and senior officers went with Joseph and his family to pay their respects to Jacob in Canaan. 
And it was quite a caravan with all the Egyptian chariots going with them. They held a solemn but impressive funeral service in Canaan for seven whole days. The local people were so moved by how much these Egyptians mourned that they renamed that place Abel Mizraim, which means the mourning of Egypt. And then the group began the long journey back from Canaan. It probably took them about a month or so. And obviously they would stop along the way and camp at night. And I'm sure they had some great conversations reminiscing about their dad. When they returned to Egypt, they went back to their homes and their jobs. But Joseph's brothers started acting all weird. Somehow they got it into their heads that maybe, just maybe, Joseph was faking it this whole time for 17 years. What if Joseph secretly hated them and it was just being nice because dad was around? What if now that Jacob was gone, Joseph would unleash his vengeance on the other brothers and make them pay for what they did to him? So open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. But now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful. Now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong we did to him, they said. Now let's talk for a minute about what made them think this. We know Joseph put the past behind him years ago. He forgave his brothers. He made it very clear to them that not only would he not judge them for their sinful actions, but he believed that God was in wor at work in all of this in spite of their sinfulness to bring about something positive. He told them 17 years ago, don't be angry with yourselves. God sent me here ahead of you to protect you from this famine. And that's a pretty incredible statement, don't you think? From a man who was betrayed and nearly killed and, and sold off as a slave by his own family. It just shows the incredible character of Joseph and his trust in God. But the brothers, the other brothers, haven't fully moved on. They hold on to the guilt from decades ago, and they wonder if Joseph is holding on to a grudge. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you, for their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of the God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. Now, I have two problems with the actions of the brothers here. Can you guess what they are? First, they did this through a letter. That's like texting someone that you're breaking up with them. They didn't have the decency and the maturity to do this face to face. We know Joseph was okay with talking with his brothers. He welcomed them with open arms into his palace. He moved them to Goshen so they could be near him and spend more time together. But in their cowardice, they send this important message instead of asking to meet and talk in person. And the second problem is that this message is almost certainly a lie. And here's why I think that. Joseph was with his father in the days leading up to his death. In Genesis 47, Jacob had a heart-to-heart -heart with Joseph about burying him in Canaan instead of Egypt. Jacob made him swear that he would honor this request after his death, and Joseph agreed. A little while later, Joseph came again with his two boys, and Jacob prophesied about what would happen with his sons and Joseph's sons. He blessed Joseph's sons, but they had a little disagreement about that, and they had to talk it out. And Jacob told Joseph that eventually the whole family would move back to Canaan, and his brother's families will each get a portion of the land God promised to their family, but Joseph's family will get a double portion. So here's the thing. 
Jacob had plenty of time to make requests, give instructions, prophesy about the future, and ask Joseph to make some promises. But not once did Jacob say anything like, hey, Joseph, I don't think you've really forgiven your brothers completely, so please do that after I'm gone and don't hurt them. So when the brothers send this message to Joseph, it's all a lie. And Joseph knows it has to be a lie. There's no way his dad would have thought this and not told him. He spent plenty of time with dad in the last few months. He heard all about dad's wishes. He made promises to his father. Not once did Jacob hint that he didn't trust whether Joseph's forgiveness was genuine. And if Jacob really did think that, do you think he would trust the brothers to be the ones delivering this message? Of course not. He would tell Joseph himself and make him swear an oath like he did about the burial site. So what's really going on here? Manipulation. The brothers know Joseph has a soft spot for dad. So they try to use that emotion in the wake of his death to make sure Joseph will be nice to them. And sure, they could have brought this up before dad died or on the journey to Canaan or during the seven day funeral or at least on the journey back to Egypt. But no, they wait until everyone's back at home and they can't even bring themselves to share it in person. Even if they needed to send a message to schedule an appointment with him or something like that, they should have asked for a meeting and said, hey, Joseph, I know you said not to worry about this, but we still feel really bad about what we did to you. And we just want to let you know that we still feel guilty and want to make sure that you know how sorry we are for how we treated you. We love you. And we and our families will support you and have your back for the rest of our lives. Now, wouldn't that be a much better thing to say? But here's what I think Joseph heard in their message. We don't trust you. Dad didn't really trust you. He told us to tell you not to hurt us. And Joseph knew it was all a lie, but it hurt him deeply. And that's why we see in the very next verse, when Joseph received the message, he broke down and wept. Why did he weep? I think he wept because after all these years, his brothers still don't get it. And they still don't trust him. They think that inside he's been holding on to bitterness this whole time. He thought they had good relationships. The past was in the past. And he's just now realizing that maybe things aren't as good as he thought they were. You know what that's like, right? To be blindsided by someone when you thought one thing about the relationship and then they reveal to you that they had a completely different understanding of the relationship this whole time. You thought this was going places and they thought you were just friends. You thought everything was fine and they thought you had been drifting apart. You thought you both put that issue behind you and then you learn they still think about it a lot. You thought you had developed trust and transparency and they've been hiding something from you for a long time. You thought you could always be real with each other and then you get the sense that they are trying to manipulate you and not telling you what they really mean. The assumptions we make in relationships are sometimes the things that hurt us the most. The broken trust and the feeling that we were misled all along hurts worse than the individual instance that reveals it. But here's the thing. You can't control how other people act in the relationship, but you can control how you respond. A lot of times we make things much worse because we respond to hurt in the wrong ways. And that's exactly the choice that Joseph now faces. If he responds out of his hurt, 
he may actually verify the concerns his brothers have. But if he responds out of love, he can look past the manipulation and the distrust to see brothers who are still immature, but relationships that can be restored. So Joseph wept over the message. And then I think he sent a response inviting them to come to his palace because in the next verse it says, then his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves, they said. And Joseph rolled his eyes. I mean, the Bible doesn't actually say that, but wouldn't you? Come on, guys, this is a little ridiculous here. We've been over this before. I'm not trying to make you slaves. I'm trying to love you and care for you and protect you and your families. But Joseph's response here is like a masterclass in dealing with hurt caused by other people. He's going to make three short statements, or at least it's condensed in the written form in Genesis. And these are three things that I think are the keys to getting past our hurts. How are you doing at getting past your hurts? Maybe it's something someone said to you that cut you to the core. Maybe it's losing a loved one. Maybe it's not getting the position you wanted. Maybe it's a lifelong dream that never came true. Maybe it's an accident or an illness that changed your life. Maybe it's not getting to do some of the things this year that you were really looking forward to. Maybe it's feeling rejected or ignored by some people you want to connect with. Or it could be that like Joseph, you've had many big things hit you hard in the last year or two that just seem unfair. There are two main ways that you can respond. You can allow yourself to be defined by your hurts or you can define yourself by your relationship with God. When you allow yourself to be defined by your hurts, you live life as a victim. You may think about those hurts a lot. You might even talk about them a lot. And so you live your life interpreting everything through that victim lens. But there's another way you can respond. And that is by being an overcomer. An, overco an overcomer responds very differently to the hurts life brings. And that's not to minimize those hurts. I know you have faced challenges that are devastating and there is a time to grieve those painful experiences and process them with other Christians and a counselor maybe, if that's appropriate. But isn't it true that sometimes we just struggle with those things continuing to affect our whole lives? Like a cloud of negativity that follows us around. Well, Joseph didn't do that. And he thrived because he didn't do that. And I know you want to thrive. You don't want to think about your past hurts every day. You don't want all of your relationships to be impacted by the baggage of the past. You don't want to be fake or manipulative with the people that you care about. So what can we learn from Joseph? First, Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? It's such a simple question, but so profound in its meaning because isn't it the opposite of the way that we think when someone hurts us? If someone does something that hurts you or hurts someone you love, which hurts you, isn't your first reaction to want to hurt them back? Now, as Christians, we know we're not supposed to do that, right? So instead of acting out in revenge, we do something that is maybe even worse. At least acting in revenge would be honest. What we often do is just add a footnote on that person in our file of them. We make a note of what they did that wronged us. And now every interaction that we have with them is a reminder of that thing. Everything they do comes with an asterisk next to it. You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? 
Because there have been times when you saw something good happen to someone that's got a footnote in your file and you get angry because you still hold on to what they did to you. They may or may not even know about it. And when someone with a footnote in your file does something objectively good, aren't you tempted to find something bad about it? And hey, I struggle with that too. A lot of times, the first thing that pops into my head is the footnote. And then I have to correct myself. Joseph didn't hold on to that stuff. He said, I'll let God worry about that. And if you're looking for freedom in this area, turning these things over to God is incredibly freeing. You don't need to carry that burden around. And God doesn't want you to. Let him worry about what's fair. Romans 12 says, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Joseph starts with the understanding that resentment only hurts you and revenge is up to God. Resentment only hurts you and revenge is up to God. What would it look like for you to practice that? For you to truly hand those things over to God and stop worrying about them, to stop dwelling on them and just trust the outcome to God. The second thing Joseph says is just as important. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. There is something Joseph understands here that I think we know to be true in our minds, but we don't often think about it in this way. What Joseph understands is that the things that happen to us in life can have two different motives behind them. There's the human motive and the divine motive. When it comes to things that hurt us, sometimes the human motive is evil. Sometimes it's just ignorance. Sometimes it's just a preference or judgment call that we don't like. For what Joseph's brothers did, there's no doubt that their motives were jealousy and their intention was to harm him and that was evil. But Joseph has learned that there were two motives involved in this because God allowed these things to happen and even used them and worked through them for his own purposes. Now that does not remove the culpability of the brothers. We can't say that because God chose to use this horrible act against Joseph that the brothers, what the brothers did was actually morally pure because God used it. No, they were still wrong. Now sometimes it's helpful to imagine what else could have happened. What if the brothers had been faithful to God back then? What if Reuben did a better job leading Simeon and the other brothers away from hurting Joseph altogether? Could God have still brought Joseph to Egypt? Absolutely. There are countless ways that God could have accomplished his purpose had the brothers shown more character. But since they were going to do something evil, God worked around their evil actions to bring about something really good. The same thing is true for Joseph in Egypt. What if Joseph had decided as a slave that he wasn't going to work hard? 
even though God blessed him and made him prosper in everything he did, what if Joseph just got lazy and discouraged, decided to do the bare minimum just to get by? Could God have raised up someone else to interpret Pharaoh's dreams and save millions in Egypt and save Jacob's family in Canaan? Absolutely, he could have. I know it's a little bit of a ridiculous question because God knows what everyone will do. So he knows that the brothers will choose evil over good. He knows that Joseph will choose good over evil. But the point is this, they still made their choices and are still responsible for their actions, even if God used them ultimately to bring about something good. And Joseph has learned this principle and it has basically unlocked a higher level of understanding for him of how life works and how God works in our lives. And here is the the principle in a nutshell. Since God is in charge, what people do to you with evil motives, God allows with divine purpose. Since God is in charge, what people do to you with evil motives, God allows with divine purpose. I know this can be a really hard thing to accept. And sometimes we wonder, why would God allow evil to occur? And how could any divine purpose be in this thing that I'm experiencing? But here's what God says in his word. Dear brothers and sisters, When troubles of any kind come your way, consider an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. And over in Romans, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. When you really believe this, it enables you to have freedom in your life that many people never experience. The freedom from holding grudges, The freedom from being defined by what other people did to you. The freedom from living life as a victim and to live life as an overcomer. So we've seen now that Joseph is not holding on to bitterness or planning revenge. And we know that Joseph understands that God uses the bad things that happen to us for his purposes and ultimately brings about good. So how then will Joseph respond to his brothers and their lack of trust, their manipulation, and they're bumbling of this whole apology thing. Here's what he says. Don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. You know what's so amazing here? Joseph now has a whole new reason to be hurt because of these guys and their lies and their manipulation. Using his own dad. He could have started lecturing them on how they did this all the wrong way. Or he could have actually let some of that distrust and animosity rise up in his heart because of how they handled this. But he is so mature that he's able to look past all of that and be incredibly good and kind to them. Remember that verse we read earlier from Romans 12? It's verse 21. Don't let evil conquer you or overcome you, but conquer or overcome evil by doing good. Joseph has learned to counter evil, not with more evil, resentment or grudges or payback. He has learned that the best way to counter evil is with good. He said many more kind things to them that we don't even know. Moses just says he continued to speak kindly to them. So here's the principle. Following God means responding to hurt with kindness. Following God means responding to hurt with kindness. Now, I want to repeat all three of these for you, but I'm going to do it in the form of questions that you can ask yourself. And I'm just going to challenge you. Be really honest with yourself right now. Who are you holding resentment against? 
who has hurt you in some way. Maybe they don't even know it, but you just keep that footnote of bitterness in your file on them. It's often said that holding on to bitterness or a grudge against someone else is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Remember that resentment only hurts you and revenge is up to God. Second question for you. What circumstances in your life look like they are completely unfair and unjust, but maybe God has a different motive for allowing them to happen? Now, I find that sometimes it's helpful to write down the details of the actions that caused you pain and then make a list of the ways that God might be able to use that to bring about something good. So the act of imagining the possible good to come out of this, out of something bad, helps us to trust that good things are still possible, to imagine what those are. It's easier to trust that God works all things out for good if we have some idea of what that good might be. That's not to say those things will definitely happen, but just to be aware of the possibility of how might God use this to bring about something good. Remember, since God is in charge, what people do to you, even with evil motives, or that causes you hurt or pain, God allows with divine purpose. And one more question. Has someone done something to hurt you in some way, with or without knowing it, that you have struggled to respond to with kindness? As hard as that is, it's one of the most freeing and personally growing actions you can take. One of the best ways to deal with bitterness in your life is to force yourself to be nice to the person you're bitter against. And not just faking it, but really striving hard to be genuinely nice to them or do nice things for them. And here's why this works so well. It's really hard to continue holding on to bitterness once you've just done something nice for that person. You basically short circuit the whole bitterness loop by introducing kindness for the person that a part of you really dislikes. You can't wait until you feel good about that person to do something good for them. It's the action that usually precedes the emotion. You do something kind for them and it's much harder to be bitter against them. Following God means responding to hurt with kindness. And can I just interject something right here? I don't wanna miss any of those thoughts. I don't wanna miss those questions. I want you to keep thinking about those, but I just have to say something here because there are some people who may be watching this and it's possible they could get the wrong idea. So I have to give you a quick caveat. It's really important. When I'm talking about people who are hurting you, we have to understand that there is a spectrum that goes all the way from they looked at me funny to they actually caused me psychological or physical harm. So don't leave without hearing this. Responding to hurt with kindness does not mean allowing dangerous or abusive people to keep hurting you. We say that again, responding to hurt with kindness does not mean allowing dangerous or abusive people to keep hurting you. And for some of the more serious situations out there, let me say this. You can treat someone with kindness from the other side of a witness stand and still tell the truth. You can still respond to hurt with kindness and yet protect yourself and speak truth. Man, 2020 has been the year of division, hasn't it? There's so much pressure to join a tribe and fight against the other tribes. But what would it look like if a community of people decided that these three things were going to be the guardrails of their relationships, getting rid of resentment, leaving revenge to God, trusting that God is at work and, and has purposes even for the things that hurt us and responding to people who hurt us with kindness. 
Would that community stand out in this era? Would they look different from the rest of the world? Would people call them strange and sometimes insult them, but secretly wish they were like them? If there's a recipe for causing division and fracturing God's people, I think Satan perfected it in 2020. But that's not what God wants for his people. And it's not going to be the ultimate outcome because the people who are led by God's spirit are going to say enough is enough. I'm going to love others even when we disagree. I'm going to make sure I put my disagreements in the right bucket and keep them in perspective. And I'm going to value unity with others more than getting my own way. I choose to live as an overcomer. And here's why I can do that. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, help us to live out these truths. Help us to live in unity and harmony with each other. Help us to not hold on to resentment, but to turn that over to you and leave revenge up to you. Help us, Lord, to understand that you have purposes in the, even the, the bad things that happen to us, the things that seem so negative, the things that hurt us, and yet you have allowed them for a reason. Help us to keep that in mind, to live our life through that lens and that perspective and help us, Lord, to repay hurt with kindness, to be good to people that maybe are not so good to us. And to live in such a different way that people are forced to ask the question, man, what is up with them? What is different about them? And how can I get that in my life? And we'll introduce them to you, Jesus. And we pray all of this in your name. Amen.